0: It's so great to have uh, our young people serving in the way that uh, we just saw, the uh, Ravelo sisters doing such a great job with the music this morning, so thank you for that. Let's pray as we prepare to open the family book, uh, the Word of God. Father in heaven, uh, we are a thankful people. We are so thankful to you, our Trinitarian God, for all that you have done and continue to do for us, for your loving kindness toward us, undeserved uh, grace and mercy, Lord, that you have lavished and poured out upon us. We pray now as we open your word again in this uh, gem of a book, uh, the book of Ruth, that Spirit you would draw near, teach us, guide us for your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2017, there was a man here in Montreal who had uh, both of his bikes stolen right out of his basement. The thief who had stolen uh, both of those bikes took the bikes immediately over to the police station pretending that he had purchased the bikes on Kijiji. He asked the police if the bikes had been reported stolen, knowing that the police would issue him a certificate of ownership if no such theft was reported, uh, filed within 30 days. Well, as it turned out, the thief obtained the certificate of ownership, at which point he promptly took the bikes over to a pawn shop and sold them, And then when the original owner who'd had the bikes stolen, when the original owner uh, discovered his stolen bikes in that pawn shop, he had to pay $500 to get them back. He had to pay a high price in order to release what was his from the pawn shop. Well, friends, this morning in our study of Ruth, one of the main ideas in the passage is the idea of cost, the idea of a high price that must be paid not to release bikes from a pawn shop, but to release two women from their social predicament. This morning we are in the last chapter of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, The last chapter of this beautiful book, and we're going to begin at verse 1. This verse follows on the heels of Naomi's statement to Ruth, if we remember that Ruth should sit tight and watch what Boaz will do to redeem her. And so verse 1, Boaz is already at work. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. As Bruce Waltke puts it, the gate at an ancient city was the site of legal and commercial transactions and the ancient equivalent of a city hall. So as Boaz sits down here at the gate of the city, we know that something with a legal flavor is about to take place. Boaz sits down and, behold, guess what? The Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Boaz had spoken of this Redeemer, this other Redeemer. Now this person came by. He just happened To come by. And at this point in our reading of the story, we are not terribly surprised at this happenstance arrival of this other Redeemer because we've had this sort of thing happen already in the story. Like when Ruth had just happened to show up in the field of Boaz, of all fields. Providentially, God sends this other Redeemer at this exact moment, at this exact place. By providential arrangement, here are Boaz and this other Redeemer together at the gate. And Boaz says to this guy, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Two things to take note of here as we meditate on this verse. First of all, uh, just from the standpoint of the narrative art of this masterpiece of a book, do take note of this and Christopher Ash has pointed this out. Take note of this, that throughout Ruth chapter 3, which we've just come through, throughout that chapter, we had a whole bunch of lying down. In fact, eight times in Ruth chapter 3, either Boaz or Ruth was said to be lying down. At the threshing floor, but now in chapter 4, it's not lying down but sitting down that is the favored action. Now in chapter 4, we have an unusual amount of sitting down uh, that takes place. I mean, just listen to the first two verses of the chapter. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So if all the lying down in Ruth 3 had sort of signified to us an electricity in the air between Boaz and Ruth, now in Ruth 4, all the sitting down signals that we, we are about to enter here into some serious legal business here at the gate And then the second thing we need to zero in on just for a moment here in verse 1 is what Boaz calls this other redeemer. Now in the English Standard Version that we're looking at here, Boaz calls this guy friend. Turn aside friend, he says. But in the original Hebrew, it's a whole lot more interesting actually than simply friend the Hebrew here is poloni almoni poloni almoni it rhymes and it's a purposeful rhyming wordplay it's like in english if we say hocus pocus or heebie-jeebies or helter skelter it's the same sort of idiom here in the hebrew a rhyming wordplay with meaningless words that rhyme together, poloni almoni. So not only do we fail to get the proper name of this other redeemer, he's also given a title that is somewhat derogatory. If we wanted to bring it over into English, it might be something like a sort of dismissive Joe Blow or Mr. So-and-so. Now, it could very well be that in the live moment, so in the moment that Boaz is actually talking to this guy, that Boaz used his real name. We're not exactly sure, but as far as the writer of Ruth is concerned, as he reports the details of the scene, he refuses to dignify this guy with his proper name. Instead, the writer refers to this guy as Poloni Almoni, Joe Blow, Mr. So-and-so. And there are reasons for this decision. And we're going to try to outline those reasons just a little bit later. But for now, let's proceed to verse 2. Both Boaz and Poloni Almoni are seated there at the gate. And now Boaz takes 10 men of the elders of the city and said, What? Sit down here. So they sat down. Obviously here, there must have been a little intermission of sorts as Boaz took the necessary time to gather these ten men, ten leaders of the city. And as Daniel Block points out, the fact that these ten men all simply left whatever they were doing to come and join Boaz here at the drop of a hat, this shows us something about Boaz's Influence, Boaz's reputation, his sway in the community. These ten guys simply drop whatever they're doing and they convene here. They meet together at the gate. He gathers ten men. Even today, to have quorum in a synagogue, you need the presence of ten men. Boaz ensures that he has quorum here for whatever legal proceeding it is that's about to take place. This will be a community decision uh, done legally with a quorum of ten men. Verse 3, Then Boaz said to our other unnamed redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, in this opening statement of Boaz's before the assembly, we get some new information. We didn't know that Naomi owned land. If this was the case, then why hadn't Ruth and Naomi simply worked that land for their sustenance? Why had Ruth had to go off scavenging in another field? Well, more than likely, here's what happened. Remember that we are in the time of the judges. Land was constantly being fought over, and there was a great deal of lawlessness in the land. Probably when Naomi had been over in Moab, the now abandoned land that her family had owned in Judah was simply taken over by a squatter, taken over by someone who had no legal right to the land while she was absent. And when Naomi and Ruth had come back, They had found it impossible, being two widows in this society, they had found it impossible to gain control of the land again. But legally, the land was still in the family. It was still part of the inheritance of the family, even if a stranger was currently occupying it. Now, looking at the details of this verse, notice that Boaz tells Poloni Almoni that Naomi wants to sell the land. I follow the argument of both Daniel Block and K. Lawson Younger here. Both of them say that in this instance, we should understand the original Hebrew in this way. Naomi is not wanting to sell the land as you and I understand selling. That is, she's not wanting to engage in an economic transaction that would transfer ownership of the property to another person. Rather, what Naomi is wanting here is to allow the family redeemer to take over use of the land, to work the land and profit from the land. The technical term here is usufruct, usufruct. What she wants here is to surrender the use of the land to the Redeemer. The Redeemer could then come in and boot the squatter off the land and then work the land and profit from it, until the year of jubilee. Yusufruct. Verse 4, Boaz continues his speech to Poloni Almoni. He says, So, I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it, that is, accept this proposition to use the land in Yusufruct and do that in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. I'm next in line, Mr. So-and-so. I'm next in line after you, and then Mister So and So says, "I will redeem it." Mister So and So, this Poloni Almoni gentleman, considers to himself here that this is a real win. It's a real win. Sure, he would now be obligated to take care of Naomi in her latter years until Naomi died. But that cost would be minor in comparison to the great profit that he could uh, gain by the use of this land. Robert Hubbard tries to get into the mind, into the thought process of Mr. So-and-so, Hubbard writes this, quote, This investment was a bargain without risk. A bargain without risk. There were no known heirs of a to reclaim title to the property later. And elderly Naomi was certainly unlikely to produce any. Close quote. So Poloni Almoni says here, yes, I will do it. I will redeem it. Mr. So-and-so is feeling pretty good about the situation here. But then, in verse 5, watch this, Boaz, in shrewd fashion, now gives Mr. So-and-so the fine print in the matter. So after everybody has just heard Mr. So-and-so say, I will redeem it, Boaz now introduces a little complication, a little wrench. Boaz says, Oh, and and by the way, Mr. So-and-so, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz says here, Did I mention, Mr. So-and-so, that this is a package deal? Ruth the Moabite also comes to you in the deal. You will now be responsible to protect this young Moabite woman and provide for her, And with her, you must now try to have a son so that Elimelech's name may be perpetuated. In fact, the Hebrew word here that the ESV translates as perpetuate is a word that means, literally, to arise. To arise. What Boaz is saying here is that it would be Mr. So-and-so's responsibility to raise up the name of Elimelech, to resurrect the name of Elimelech by having a son with Ruth. Now, at this moment, I imagine, as we read the story, I imagine the face of Mr. So-and-so, the look on Poloni-Almoni's face. He goes now, suddenly, he goes from a confident sort of swagger, the confident smile that he had had in verse 4, now to a completely deflated sort of a, a look on his face. He had not been aware that Ruth came with the deal. But she does... And to have a son with Ruth, Ruth, listen, to have a son with her would mean that whatever land Mr. So-and-so might have in this deal would go, by right of family inheritance, it would go to that son. Mr. So-and-so may very well end up with no land in this deal, And yet he would still have the ongoing cost, wouldn't he, of providing for Ruth and providing for Naomi and providing for whatever other children may may come into the picture. In that sort of scenario, Mr. So-and-so might even end up having to sell himself into debt slavery just to try to make ends meet. Indeed, this whole situation, his whole life now might be in jeopardy if he agrees to this redemption. It all was seeming too costly. And so, verse 6, Mr. So-and-so backpedals. He backpedals. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it. I can't do it. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, what we notice here, and this is important, is that in his statement here, Poloni Almoni is clearly focused on himself, right? on what he may have been able to gain in this transaction. Notice all the first-person language he uses here. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. What's he saying here? He's saying, in essence, this. Elimelech's name and reputation, it's it's all well and good, but my own personal fortune is more important. Naomi and Ruth may really be in need, but my financial stability is higher on my priority list. That's essentially what he's saying here. You see, when it was about his own gain, Poloni Almoni was fine with it, but when he learned that the interests of this devastated family were in play, well then, it became a different matter. Poloni Almoni will not destroy his own inheritance. He will not destroy his own financial picture. He will not endanger his estate to become a redeemer here. Now in Ruth chapter 1, we had Orpah, do you remember Orpah? We had Orpah counting the cost, if we remember, counting the cost of proceeding into Judah. And she decided that she would turn back to Moab, at which point Orpah dropped right out of the story. Here, we have Poloni Almoni counting the cost of redemption and deciding to say no to being a redeemer. And he, too, will now drop right out of the story. It's really no wonder that the writer of Ruth gives this person the title Poloni Almoni. It's really not a surprise that such a person remains unnamed in the story. This guy might have played a major role, not only in Ruth and Naomi's rescue, but indeed, he may have played an important role, a major role, in the whole history of redemption leading up to Jesus Christ, but since he decided that his own fortunes were of primary importance, since he stuck to his own interests, he is not named in the story. And even more than being unnamed, he's given, given this rather derogatory title, Poloni Almoni, Joe Blow, Mr. So-and-so. God, in his word, makes sure that this self-interested guy remains unidentified, not even dignified with a name. And of course, there's a lesson here for us, isn't there? A lesson about checking our own self-interest. Well, before we go to verse 7, I want you to notice that Mr. So-and-so, really here, he's serving as a sort of foil for Boaz. Listen, we've already talked about the ways that this redemption of Ruth and Naomi would be costly. To redeem them might mean No land in the future because the land would go by rights to any son that was produced. And on top of the potential of ending up with no land, you would still carry the obligation to provide for these two women along with any other children that might be born. The cost of redemption, here's the point, the cost of redemption applied not only to Mr. So-and-so, of course, but to Boaz as well, should Boaz become the Redeemer. Boaz would incur the exact same risk, the exact same potential costliness in this matter. Christopher Ashe says that what Boaz is about to do will presumably endanger his own estate just as much as it would have endangered the estate of Mr. So-and-so. So we have to see this. What Boaz will now do involves personal sacrifice. His redemption of Naomi and Ruth is going to be a costly redemption. Verses 7 and 8. Now the narrator of the story, the narrator, jumps in and provides this interesting explanation of a custom in ancient Israel. And the fact that the narrator has to provide such an explanation suggests to us that even by the time that this book was written, The custom had already dropped out of use. That's why he has to explain it here. He says, for the benefit of the reader Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. We're not entirely sure of the details surrounding this sandal business. Some have suggested that when you took the sandal from the other party, it was sort of like saying, I now stand in your shoes in this matter. I now accept responsibility, the responsibility that had been your responsibility. I now take it on to myself. Well, whatever the case, it seems that the passing of the sandal, we can say this, the passing of the sandal was a sort of binding gesture, a binding gesture that confirmed the transaction, sort of like an official shaking of the hands, only it's done with this sandal business. Verses 9 and 10, we have a very climactic moment in the story now, friends. Boaz receives the sandal, and I think probably still with the sandal in his hand, he says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all." from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife, to raise up, to resurrect, to perpetuate, the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz is willing to pay the price of redemption. Boaz is willing, self-sacrificially he is willing, to incur the risk and the cost. Boaz makes it all legal-like here. It is now a done deal. This is a climactic moment. Now notice a few things in these verses. Notice first that twice Boaz uses the words, this day. Notice that. Twice he says, you are witnesses this day. The words, this day, are meant to connect us back to what Naomi had said at the tail end of Ruth chapter 3 when she had promised Ruth that Boaz would settle the matter today. Well, as it turns out, this day, the same day, Boaz did just that. The matter is settled the same day. Naomi had known before, hadn't she? She had expressed her confidence in Boaz. She knew that Boaz was a redeemer who could be relied upon. He takes care of matters this day. And then second, notice here that Boaz in his speech, this is important, he names in this speech every character who had been affected by the tragedy in the story, except for Orpah. Boaz mentions, he names Naomi and Elimelech and Kilion and Machlon and Ruth. And there's a sense here that these people are honored as they are named. They are honored as they are named. And now a new wholeness, a new restoration will arise for this entire devastated family as Boaz self-sacrificially steps in to be their redeemer, to be the redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. And then third, as Hubbard has pointed out, watch how these verses tie up several loose ends in the story. Ruth had effectively said to Boaz, remember back at 3: nine, she effectively had said to Boaz, "Marry me." Now at 4:10, Boaz confirms explicitly and publicly he confirms, that his intention is to marry Ruth. Even further back, Naomi had invoked the name of Yahweh as she had prayed that Ruth would have... A husband, back in chapter 1. Now, blessedly and kindly, Yahweh, God of Israel, has answered that prayer. Ruth has a husband. Well, friends, that 10th verse is as far as we're going to go this morning. And as is our uh, well-established custom, we turn finally to ask the crucial question What do these verses from the Old Testament revelation have to do with the New Testament revelation? Is there a connection between Ruth chapter 4 and Jesus Christ? At the beginning this morning, we told the story of the Montreal man who had had to shell out $500 to redeem his two stolen bikes from the pawn shop costly redemption. And then we journeyed through the costly redemption that either Mr. So-and-so or Boaz would have to undertake should Naomi and Ruth be redeemed from their difficulty. There was a price that had to be carefully weighed in the matter. And of course, Boaz ends up taking on the price, the cost Well, of course, we know, don't we, that an infinitely more costly redemption, an infinitely more costly redemption has taken place. A redemption undertaken by Boaz's descendant, Jesus. You see, in Boaz's case, the potential price to be paid was land rights going eventually to a son. That was part of the price. Along with a good deal of money being spent caring for two women. In Jesus' case, the price to redeem you and to redeem me, the price he paid to buy us out of our dire predicament, to raise us to our position of life from our position of death in trespasses and sins. The price Jesus paid was this. Jesus laid aside the privileges of his heavenly position. He laid those aside to come to earth, to take on human flesh, such as you and I have, to become our human Nearer relative, and then what would happen? Jesus, the Redeemer, the God man, would willingly incur an unspeakable cost. He would pay the price of his own blood, his very life, and he would do that in substitution for us, to free us. It cost the life of Jesus to free us from our hopeless spiritual poverty. Our ransom out of our dire condition was paid for. Says First Peter one eighteen and nineteen was paid for not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or spot and this redemption that Jesus accomplished of course was not a one-time deal for a couple of women in ancient Israel as it had been with Boaz the redemption that Jesus secured on the cross is an eternal Redemption, according to Hebrews 9.12, and it's a redemption that is undertaken for many, Mark 10.45, for a host of sinners from every tribe, language, people, and nation, as we heard in our New Testament reading this morning from Revelation 5. The redemption that Jesus accomplishes is a far larger far more costly, far more glorious, benevolent, and far-reaching and lasting redemption than that of Boaz. And so, as sinners who have been redeemed at the price of Jesus' shed blood, we cry out this morning with the four living creatures and the 24 elders of Revelation 5. Let's read part of that passage again. Worthy is Jesus, worthy are you, worthy is Jesus to take the scroll and open its seals for he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people, there's redemption language, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Boaz redeemed Ruth and took Ruth as his wife. Those whom Jesus redeems, his church, he takes as his bride. As the church, we are the Ruth that the Redeemer has taken to be his own at the high price of his very life. This week... Consider carefully, consider repeatedly the high price at which you were bought out by God. Rejoice in amazement at the love of God that has done this. And in tandem with that, I ask you Is there a price, a cost of love? That God is beckoning you to pay this week for the benefit of another. May Boaz inspire you, may Christ inspire you, and may Christ, the risen Christ, lead you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we could meditate on the costliness of the redemption that you have undertaken for the rest of our lives and still not plumb the depths. Lord God, this week I pray for every person who's watching, who has come under this word, that you would bring us to new places, Lord, in humility under the cross as we understand the price that you have paid to redeem us. And Lord, that we would be Christ-like people, self-sacrificial people, benevolent people, people who offer grace and mercy, people who offer love, undeserved love. Lord, transform and change us and continue to lead us along the path of righteousness for your sake and make us look increasingly like your son. We pray in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Hi there and welcome back to 1225 Live. Uh, This is now the 10th episode in a 12-episode special edition uh, that relates to our current sermon series on the book of Ruth. Today, we're offering a few additional thoughts on yesterday's preaching passage, which was Ruth chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. One thing I didn't delve into in yesterday's sermon was the language uh, surrounding the person of Ruth. So, for example, specifically uh, in verse 5, Boaz talks about Mr. So-and-so acquiring Ruth uh, to be uh, uh, to be his wife should he decide to um, agree to the deal that's being presented. And then down in verse 10, Boaz himself says that he has bought Ruth to be his wife. Well, of course, the language of acquiring and buying Ruth uh, strikes us kind of odd and it may not sit very well with us. Is the text implying that Ruth can be simply acquired and bought and sold uh, like property for a husband. Well here it it serves us well to do a little bit of homework uh, concerning the Hebrew language that is behind those English translations acquire bought or buy. Uh, The Hebrew word that is used in both verse 5 and verse 10 is the same word. It's the word kana. And sure enough, the basic range of meaning of that word kana is to buy, to purchase. However, when we look at the use of this word in other places in the Old Testament, some other places at least, what we find is a close connection between the word And the concept of gracious redemption or the concept of um, a merciful redemption of a person who is in great need or persons who are in great need. For example, in Exodus chapter 15, which of course is the great hymn of victory that Israel sings right after they have been delivered so miraculously and graciously by the Lord through the Red Sea. In that hymn that they sing, uh, in verse 16 of that chapter, they use the word "kana." They talk about how God had, in that delivery, God had purchased them. And that purchase there, of course, is a good thing. It is a thing that God has graciously wrought. And only three verses earlier, in verse 13, there uh, it is said that the chesed of God leads toward redemption, redeeming the people. So in hesed, God leads them to redemption, verse 13. And then verse 16, God kanahs them, he purchases them. In that context, uh, these concepts of God redeeming them and purchasing them are not very far apart at all. And then also in Nehemiah 5, verse 8, there, there are some Jewish brothers who are said to be kanad, bought back from the nations. And in that context, again, this is about a person or persons with means who graciously deliver people out of their trouble. So I don't think that Ruth 4.5 and 4.10 should be offensive to us, this use of the word kana in both of these verses. This is not about a sort of dispassionate Uh, buying and selling Ruth like a piece of property. Rather, what it's about is Boaz lovingly, mercifully, self-sacrificially taking Ruth under his protective wing. In fact, redeeming both Ruth and Naomi out of their trouble. And of course, when the Apostle Paul uses this language of buying and being bought in 1 Corinthians 6.20, certainly it doesn't offend us, does it? We as believers have been bought with a price, with the high price of Christ's precious blood. He has done this in merciful, self-sacrificial, amazing, undeserved love toward us. We are bought with a price. And all of it has been done by our nearer Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah for his purchase of us where would we be without it? Well, for now, every blessing to you, and we hope to see you back here next Monday afternoon.